you would please turn to Matthew chapter 21. One of the things that always strikes me is how can people who have the same experience, the same background, the same insight, they can be in front of a situation with someone and they can see the situation completely different. As a matter of fact, you even participated in that this morning, maybe without even realizing it, I'm sure. That idea of the wondrous cross. Do you know there was a time in history, uh, Cicero particularly mentions during the Roman Empire, the actual word for the cross wouldn't even be mentioned. Uh, anytime somebody would speak of the cross outside of a formal rendering of someone being in convicted of the worst crime, outside of that, people didn't speak of the cross. At best, you'd have somebody whisper in the corner, and you together today gather, and you speak of the wondrous cross. That is really remarkable. What's happened? Something has changed. You see the cross completely different than they saw back then. Because you see it as a portal toward freedom and forgiveness of your sins. That's an amazing thing. Statistics have been made and surveys have been taken as it relates to Christianity and a belief in God. Do you know as it relates to people who are likely to trust and believe in God, the more money you make, the less statistically you're going to believe in a God. I find that interesting. If you make over $100,000, out of the people that will believe in God and that he's involved with the daily affairs of our life, 50% of those who would believe, if you make over $100,000, you're likely not to believe. That's interesting. Why is that? Do you know also statistically if you're a woman, you have a tendency to believe in God more than a man. Now that confirms a lot of different things, but we'll move on from that. (laughs) Do you know when it comes to education level, the less education you've received, at least from high school down, you have a greater propensity to believe in a living God who's active and involved in your life. If you go to the doctorate level, your chances fall off the table that you follow after God or have any kind of belief of God active in your life. Why is that? Now, there's a lot of reasons that we could give for it. And it's not uniquely related to gender or education. I think there's a lot of environmental things that go into this. But I'd like to introduce you to a thought that's going to run through the text today. And that idea is is that what you see determines what you do. And what you do determines who you are. Think about that. What you see determines what you do. What you do determines who you are. Some years ago, I spent some time with an individual from the great state of Minnesota. Anybody here from Minnesota? Okay. (laughs) Not that great here. There was an individual who uh, I spent some time with. He was a fantastic communicator. Fortune 500 speaker. He would travel around and speak to people. As I got to know him, 
he, uh, he grew up dirt poor. Minnesota, he grew up. Now he lives in Colorado. And he was telling me about the fact that he works about six months out of the year, and the rest of the time, he lives in the woods. And I said, excuse me, what did you just say? He says, yes. He says, I love hiking. He says, matter of fact, this year I've got a, a four-month hike, and I've already gone out and I've buried my food all around the hills of Colorado, and I'm going to go back, and I will be digging up the food, and I'll be eating it as I go. I said, you go with anybody? He said, no, I go by myself. This is a strange conversation. Fortune 500 speaker in front of people all the time, and this guy is a recluse, but he can turn it on and turn it off when he needs to. Fantastic communicator. And then he started telling me some stories, and years ago I shared this. He said that when he was young, he used to go out and hunt. And matter of fact, uh, they needed to hunt in order to survive. His father couldn't go one day, and he said, it was in the dead of winter, and he said, I need you to go out, and I need you to hunt some rabbits. We need to get some rabbits. Now, he'd never gone by himself before, so he went out. He went out for hours. And if you're from Minnesota, which no one clearly is, <laughs> is from here, it gets cold. It was hours out there looking around, didn't see one rabbit, not one. Thought there were rabbits all over where they left. Came back in, slammed the door behind him, put his gun in the corner. His dad said, how'd it go? He said, terrible. There's no rabbits. They're gone. Something must have happened. His father leaned back and started to laugh. And he said, they're all over the place. He said, no, they're not. I was just out there hunting, dad. Didn't you hear me? I couldn't find any of them. He said, you know what the problem is? You were looking for a rabbit. This is what I want you to do. I want you to put your boots and your coat back on. I want you to get your gun in the corner. I want you to go back out. Don't look for a rabbit, please. What I want you to do is I want you to look for a black button. That's what I want you to look for. Don't look for a rabbit. Look for a black button. He went back out. Thought his dad was nuts. What black button? There's no black in nature. It just, just doesn't, doesn't exist in nature. And all of a sudden, he saw black buttons. You see, the eye of a snow bunny is black. And it looks like a button. And if you look for the snow bunny, you'll never see it. Because it's white. And you can't see it in the snow. But if you look for a black button, you'll see it. He went on to teach him all sorts of stuff like when you hunt for deer, don't look for the deer necessarily. Look for the white tail. And when you look for any animal in the woods of any kind of size, don't look necessarily for the animal. Look for a horizontal line in the woods. He said, because there's only two things in the woods that are horizontal. There's a fallen tree and the back of an animal. His dad taught him all sorts of stuff, he told me. But he came away understanding that what you see determines what you can do. What you do determines how successful you'll be as far as being a hunter. What you see matters because everything down line from that is affected. Everything in your life. You even participated in that today. You see the cross as something wonderful. People didn't think that before. But you do because... You profess Christ. If you're here in this church, we assume that. 
What I'd like for you to do is consider this truth running through our text today on a Palm Sunday. We're getting at the front end of Holy Week. This is the week where Christ is determined to go to the cross. How you see this week determines the significance of this week in your life and the worship that you could possibly experience. Don't let this week just slip by. How you see this week determines what you do. What you do determines who you are. And for a Christian, it determines the level of worship, of focus, of adoration, of significance you enter into. So in our passage today, we're going to see five groups of people We're going to run through Matthew chapter 21, 1 through 17. You're going to see five groups of people. And what I want you to see is the fact that what they see determine what they do. And what they do indicates who they are. So if you're over in Matthew chapter 21, we're going to look at the first group of this people. The first group out of this people would be the idea of the disciples. The disciples is the, are the first group that we're going to look at this morning. And I would say that these group of people, I'd call them ready and willing. And if you have an outline, you can write that down next to them. I would call these people ready and willing, the disciples. Now, it's important that we set the scene before we start getting into the text. And why is that? Because this scene is unlike any other scene thus far. Uh, Jesus has participated in Passovers before this, but if you remember, this is the significance of the time of God rescuing the people out from Egypt. This is the time that Jesus is going into Jerusalem. Now, at this time, it's important to remember, get in your mind's eye, as they say, what it would have looked like. Imagine a scene about the size between North Forsyth, or excuse me, Northside Hospital, right down the road, and Walmart. Imagine the, just imagine about an, an oval or a square about that size, if you're familiar with that. Now imagine putting about 1.2 to possibly 2 million people into that square footprint. That's what you have at this moment. You have between 1.2 million and 2 million people who've come from all around the world, the known world of this time, who've arrived in Jerusalem. Many of them have come with animals, wooden carts, relatives. Matter of fact, for every 10 people, the law determined that you have to have one lamb. So imagine. If we have the amount of people, let's say up to 2 million people, how many animals, how many lambs would you have to have, whether you brought them or whether they're in the Jerusalem proper area? Anybody who does quick math here? No one from Minnesota is here, so hopefully we have some math people here. Oh, jeepers. Turned on me there. Some 200,000. You have some 200,000 lambs alone. I don't know if you've ever been around a lamb. If you get a few of those together and they start all making noise, that gets pretty out of control pretty quick. On top of that, you have people that are visiting, people that haven't seen each other in years. Imagine as people are coming up to each other, measuring children. Man, you've gotten so big. People looking for places to stay. People 
bartering what the room is going to go for. The sound of moving around. Matter of fact, there were so many people during this time that Passover time had gotten so big that they had actually originally, you had to celebrate Passover within the walls of Jerusalem. But now they've extended it. Just for this time, the Passover can be celebrated all the way up the Mount of Olives, all the way to a little village called Bethpage. All that area was now extended. And at night you would see, uh, you'd see fires. You'd see tents inside the walls, outside of the walls. People clustered all around. The noise, the animal sounds that are happening, the people rushing here and there, buying last minute spices, selling things. You need to see this before we get into the text. It's, it's chaos. I think the only thing I can get close to it outside of Bucky's that I mentioned the other, other week <laughs> is probably like a, a Black Friday sale on, during the Christmas season before it got all online. It's, it's, it's pandemonium. And in this situation, in this scene, we see that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And we know that there's an enormous crowd that's already there. But if you notice in Matthew 20, 29, Jesus comes up from Jericho and he has a massive crowd. It says a great crowd followed him. So not only are a lot of people in Jerusalem from all around the world, now the people came up, coming up from Jericho with Christ, this massive crowd is moving its way into Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up the story of the disciples. The first group that we'll consider. What did they see? What did they do? Determined who they were. Let's look at that. Verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. When we look at this passage, the disciples didn't question Christ. They were ready, they were willing. Jesus had spoken about going to Jerusalem. He had spoken about going and dying. Now, how much of that was registering clearly in the mind of the disciples? Uh, we would say periodically we think they get it. Other times they seem to be very dense. But one thing's for sure. When they asked, when Jesus asked the disciples to go get that colt, they immediately responded. They were ready. They were willing. There's something happening here because then Matthew interjects that this was fulfilling the prophecy. What exactly is this prophecy that they're fulfilling? It's fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 62.11 or Zechariah 9.9. But more than Matthew connecting this prophecy and the disciples willing and ready to fulfill their role in the prophecy, it's important that the imagery hits us. You see, a king coming into a city was often coming in with an army. He would come in with a group of people to take over the city. Jesus doesn't. In the scene of this picture, it's a, the ideal ruler of Psalm 72. It's he comes in on the fall of a donkey, meek, mild, 
Jesus is assuming his rightful kingship over the people. How much the disciples know, we're not sure. But we know that they were ready and they're willing. And because what they saw in Christ determined what they did. And what they did confirmed who they are. That they're willing to follow after Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, they do what he directed in verse 6. They come and they bring that to him. Jesus is never pictured riding on an animal in any other scene. You would have had at this moment the rich people, the affluent people. Certainly people like Mary when she was pregnant who couldn't walk. But Jesus is never pictured. He's uniquely pictured in this moment as an arriving king. So I ask you this this week, as we enter into this, as we prepare our hearts for Holy Week, what do you see? Maybe not just in the passage, but what do you see in your life? Do you see Jesus Christ as king? Have you allowed him to to work through your issues? Do you see your significance in light of who he is? Do you find your joy in Christ? Or do you find your joy going up and down based on the news cycles, based on the stock market? The picture that Matthew paints and that the disciples respond to is Jesus is king. In other words, in our common day vernacular, he calls the shots. He sets the pace. He rules the land. Now, we're not a monarchy here, but I'd have to ask you this morning, does he rule you? Do you see him as your ruler? Do you see him as your king? You see, because if you see him in that way, it'll change what you do because it's changed who you are. That's the first picture we see of Jesus in this area. A second group of people, group number two, I would say, we find those in verses eight through 11. That would be the crowd. Let's label them uh, passionate yet confused. If we had the idea of ready and willing for the disciples, I think that fits for the crowd, the idea of passionate yet confused. Look at verse eight. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When they entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Right within those Just a few verses. Uh, You see an amazing amount of passion, don't you? Imagine the scene, the crowds that we had already envisioned. But if you notice the varying perspectives, right from the beginning, it says, most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the ground. Most. Not all. In other words, there's some people going, I'm not getting my clothes dirty. You crazy? Who is this guy? Could be they rejected Christ outright. Could be they didn't want to commit to Christ because, let's face it, the religious leaders weren't happy with Christ. They didn't need any more trouble in their life. Let's just stand back and watch what happens. Spectating has always been good for these people. 
low commitment, wallflowers. When I was in gym class in 10th grade, we had a game that we used to play that was pretty violent. I'll just admit it to you. Eventually got banned. And one of the things that was about that game is you'd hit the volleyball with your fist and you had five goalies that are against the bleachers and the gymnasium was cut in half. Effectively, it was a giant fist fight because wherever that ball went, people were swinging. Every gym class, you had a group of people that were standing by the wall. Never got involved. They didn't want to get into it. We called them wallflowers. I picture these people like that. They want to see what happens. They want to play it safe. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Other people participated. Uh, they didn't have anything on their own to do. They didn't want to get their clothes dirty, but they wanted to spread these on the ground. So then you have the crowds who went before him and followed after him. So you have people in the front who are leading the parade, you know? They're really jacked up. I got no problem with people seeing me. People behind, they couldn't fit maybe in the front. They're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Now that's interesting. It's the idea of save us now. The idea of please save us. That's interesting. Then to the son of David. To the son of David. Now, if you're in the crowd and you hear somebody say that, somebody is just up the game. That's what we've been talking about in Luke and 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. That son of David is a picture of the coming Messiah. That he's got to be a son of David in the lineage of David. So when that said, wow. And then blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. That's the picture of save us now in the highest, El Yon. The most high God, save us now. Do you see all the pictures here? All the different imagery of all the different voices in the crowd. Everybody's got an opinion about who Jesus Christ is. They're passionate. Yet they're incredibly confused. Look at verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. That idea of stirred up is also from Matthew 27, 51. Stirred up. It's the word that's used in Matthew 27, 51 for an earthquake. So it's, they're stirred up. In other words, picture an earthquake and everybody just panicking and running around and not knowing what to do mentally, not knowing what's happening physically, being shaken. That's the word. Everyone, the whole city, 1.2 million, up to 2 million people experiencing a theological, political, governmental, ecclesiastical earthquake. Who is this? Who is this? I can't get to the front. I just see all this stuff. People are, what in the world's going on? And the crowd said, notice how Matthew takes all these different views and he converges it down into a bottom line view. The crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You might have a tendency to think, wow, that's great. Prophets are, are, are big time. Elijah. Moses, I mean, those are significant people. It's great that they're recognizing. Now maybe they'll listen. See, because you listen to a prophet. 
But what might seem good was incredibly tragic. You see, because a prophet can only give you information about God. A prophet's not God. See, a prophet can only tell you about the coming Messiah. But he's not the Messiah. The prophet can simply tell you of your need to have a relationship with the God of the universe and to pay attention to the sacrificial system, engage in what is happening in Jerusalem during this time. But he can't shed his blood for them. He can't rescue them. He can't provide for their need. At this point, the crowd seal their fate. They're passionate. They're incredibly confused. They say, Jesus, the best he can get to us. After all of that's been said, Matthew boils it down and says, they think he's a prophet. Ah, after everything that he's done. He can't help you if he's just a prophet. If that's what you see, then that's how you'll treat him. That's where you'll see him to be. And he's got to stay in that lane. If he gets out of that lane, as we see by the end of the week, they kill him. See, what you see determines what you do. What you do determines who you are. They saw wrongly, which leads to the fact that they don't have time for Christ in the end. And isn't that true? Isn't it true that if you think Jesus Christ is a, a loving, kind of grandma, grandpa type figure. They just kind of show up and they want to make your life better and they take you to the amusement park and they buy you candy. They do stuff your parents would never do. They're just great people to be around. You love those. If you think Jesus is like that, now you're going to miss the real Jesus. If you think Jesus is here to make your life better, you missed it. If you think Jesus is here just to get a celestial insight to what God thinks, he's just like a prophet. You're going to miss him. Because these people didn't need a savior. They just needed insight. And if you think Jesus Christ has come just to give us information of how we can love one another better, where we are, whatever sex we are, whatever sex we choose to align ourselves with, that's how Jesus is to me. Jesus is, makes my life better. Oof. You're still in your sins. Because he never came to make your life better. He came to reconcile you to the holy God who's going to pour out his wrath on humanity. And you either find your salvation, your sins forgiven in Christ, or your sins will never be forgiven. Well, that's the second group. We've got to move on because we're looking at five different groups. So we get to the next group. I think I'll call this group Religion as a means to, uh, these are the money changers. Look at verse 12. These are the money changers. It says this, as Jesus entered the temple, drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you make it a den of robbers. This is not the first time, by the way, that Christ has uh, run into this particular group. We know from John chapter 2, 13 through 16, uh, Jesus ran into them before at the very same location that he's at now. Matter of fact, we know from verse 15 of John 2 that in that interaction, Jesus takes time before driving them out to make a whip of cords. 
before he drives by. In other words, Jesus makes his way up into the temple. And by the way, you'd have to move through six progressions. You'd go up to Jerusalem. Then you go up to the city. Then you go up into the temple mount. And then you'd be the court of the Gentiles. And then you go up into the, the women's gate. And you go up into the court of Israel. And then up into the court of the priests. And throughout all of that, right outside of all of the activity, in the court of the Gentiles, these people would be these money changers. And he says in his first interaction, the same thing he says. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And now he shows up here and he says that his house is supposed to be called a house of prayer. You're making it a den of robbers. That comes from Isaiah 56 verse 7. That his house or my house, it says there in verse 7, shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, all peoples. Although they're the people of Israel, he says it's open to anyone. That's what my house is. And then in Jeremiah 7, 4 through 10, he said that he saw them making it a den of robbers. Now, what is going on here? What does that mean? What are we missing? Well, picture the scene. These people who found religion as a means to something, they had opened up in Jesus's day uh, what was called Annas's Bazaar. Now, what does that mean? Annas was the high priest at the time. And he had figured out that he can have a sweet deal when it comes to the Passover because people are coming from all around the world and they have to bring supplies with them or they could buy them from the religious establishment in Jerusalem. So the court of the Gentiles, people would be sold different plots. Imagine it like a bazaar you would go to or a a flea market. They would have like little cubicles And the people that would bring their, let's say, lamb, because you had one lamb for every 10 people, so you brought a lamb for your family. And it had traveled over hills, and you'd try to keep it from getting blemished, but by the time it arrives in Jerusalem, it's nicked up a bit. You take it to the priest and say, because the priest had to authorize this, the the animals. The priest looks at it and goes, oh, that, that front left leg. You can't offer that animal. It's blemished. You can't do that. But you know what? This is good news for you. My buddy Frank, who's a priest, he's got a great set. I've already approved of a group of lambs. Just go over there and buy those. And they would say, I got to do it. I I need to commune with the the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've got to have my sins recognized. I've got to take care of this. You'd go over there. And you'd find that the price is 50% higher than any other time that you'd visited. Alfred Edersheim in his customs book on the first century talks about this. You'd go over and you'd see the, the price and you'd go, I can't pay for this. It's, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have that kind of money. And so we go, well, that's okay. Because over at that booth, we've got somebody who's doing loans. And you can take out a loan. Your family's name is good. We'll write that down. You get out a loan, come back, by this animal. Do you see how that got out of hand pretty quick? You'd come in from far, far, far land and you had plenty of money, but you had to do an exchange rate. And that exchange rate was ridiculous. Uniquely at this time. Maybe you're somebody in this passage that says, the money changes in the seats of those who sold pigeons. 
Like, why does he separate those who sold pigeons? What is it about pigeons that it gets pressed? If you were very, very poor, you couldn't afford a lamb. You were called to buy a pigeon. And that was a concession, understanding that some people aren't well off. But do you know that you'd show up and if you trace kind of the economic comparison from today to back then, in our language today, it would be about five cents for a pigeon, maybe 10. But if you compare what they were charging back then, it was around $5. Now all of a sudden, the people who are participating, who could only participate with a very small sacrifice, are locked out completely. They have no hope. They can't sacrifice. They can't participate. Why? Because these money changers. Picture the scene. People everywhere. Jesus shows up and sees Annas' bazaar in the court of the Gentiles. He loses it. Who are you to do this to my father's people? Who are you to use religions as a means to extend yourself? Who are, how dare you do this? How dare you shut people out? How dare you portray my father as somebody who's a rip-off artist. He's invited everybody to freely come and celebrate the fact that I've taken my people out of Egypt. Now they can celebrate. They're looking for the Messiah to come and you're ripping them off. That's why he made whips when the first time he showed up. And that's why he flips the tables here. He can't stand it. The people who receive a... They see religion as a means to an end. What they see determines what they do, and what they do determines who they are. These are lost people that are interested in fleecing people who are serious about God. We have them everywhere today. Everywhere. Seems like they're facilitating your relationship with the Lord. They're trying to help you connect with God, but they're ripping you off completely doesn't matter where your economic status is. They were interested in one thing, and that's in engorging themselves on your need of God. What do you see when it comes to this? As a means, we don't have money changers here today, but we sometimes fall into this category where we see if I get my kids to church, then I kind of have a silent deal with God. You keep my kids on the straight and narrow. I'll put them in church. I'll kind of check out as the spiritual leader fathers, as the family. And when your kids start struggling or he walks, you go, God, what's up? What's up? I thought you were for me. I thought the deal was if I do my part, you do your part. You're not a money changer in the court. We're not doing that. But boy, I'll tell you, you're using religion as a means to an end. You see, this is the bottom line. You need to follow Jesus because he's Jesus. Not for the good things that may come from following Jesus because the best thing is your sins are forgiven and you have communion with the living God. Now you need to work out your faith. You need to engage with your kids. You need to engage with people in your life. Listen, in your marriage, just because you married a Christian doesn't mean it's going to be a piece of cake. And if you think that, please let me know. We've got counselors standing by. It's hard. That's the third group. 
Now the next group we have, uh, this group number four, the blind and the lame. In verses 14 and 16, they're intermingled with our final group, but we're just going to cut and cut around this. I would call this group of people needy. People who, res- who need to receive from the Lord and notice what they do after they receive. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. In other words, picture the scene. After he clears people out, the merchants are running for cover. The tables have been flipped over. People are scattering getting out of there. It makes room for the blind and the lame. The blind and the lames are on the fringes, on the edges. Now all of a sudden they can come to Christ and he healed them. It says that they were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. And then it says when the the religious leaders who talk about in a moment, they were indignant. They were out of their mind. They're furious at this because they knew what it meant. They settled in the crowds. The crowds kind of came back, said he's a prophet. Okay, but these people, Hosanna, save us, please, son of David. They confront Christ with that. Do you hear what they're saying in verse 16? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? In other words, from people who can't talk, infants, nursing babies, you have ordained praise. In other words, the the people that you would think have no reason to worship after they encounter Christ because they're blind and they're lame, they worship freely. They worship freely. You could never expect, you'd think those people would put their fists up in the, in the air. Say, you made me this way, God. How dare you? I don't want anything to do with God. I'm, I'm blind. My life is difficult. Living in, you know what it's like to be blind in first century? Scratching out a meager existence. Time for God? No way. Lame I can't walk. I can't farm. I can't prepare. I'm a, I'm a laughing stock. People think I'm a, I'm a sinner. God's after me. And after a while, people start thinking God's after me. Jesus shows up and does this. They're crying out, Hosanna, save us. Son of David, we believe. They received Christ for who he was, what he was doing, and they worshiped. The blind people, what they saw, the irony of it, determined what they did. What they did determines who they are. But contrasting that, we see the fifth group. Embedded in this, and I think it's not for, it's not an accident. I think Matthew puts the blind and the lame in this story and contrasts it with the final group at the very end here as kind of a crescendo of which side are you going to be on? Do you recognize yourself as the blind and the lame and need Christ or the chief priests and scribes? And if we are going to put down some title for this group. I think we would title this group Power and Prestige. Power and Prestige. Because that's what they're all about. Verse 15, after they see Jesus healing the, line, the blind and the lame. This is an amazing line, verse 15. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, son of David, They were indignant. Now now just let the force of that idea hit you. You've got lame and blind. 
They come to Christ. They leave seeing and walking, praising the Lord. The religious leaders saw the wonderful things. They saw the guy in line who couldn't see. He interacts with Christ. He walks away seeing. They saw the guy carried to Christ who couldn't walk. After he interacts with Christ, he leaves walking. They saw these things. And what is the response? They're indignant. They're furious. They hate what Christ is doing. How is that possible? How is that How do you see that and not affect the way you relate to Christ? The only explanation I can come up with is because they saw Jesus Christ as an intruder. They saw him as an intruder. Their lives were great. Their lives were fine. Their lives were all they wanted their lives to be. And when Jesus shows up, he wrecks them. They can't stand Jesus because he doesn't fit the mold that they expected the Messiah to be. They wanted to be rulers alongside of Messiah. They had no time for these kinds of people. And when they see this with their own eyes, they are furious. Confront Christ versus worship Christ like the blind and lame did. And by the time of the end of the week, this is their first, I would say, descent into madness, if you will. Because the time of the end of the week in John 19, 1 through 6, we see Jesus Christ being put before the religious leaders and we see them given an offering. Do you want Barabbas, who is a murderer, an obvious murderer, or do you want Christ? The religious leaders whip the crowds up to take the murderer. You would say, how is that possible? I would say it's completely possible after they see Christ with their own eyes heal people who can't see and can't walk. I mean, that's consistent, isn't it? It's madness. It gets even worse. John 19, 14, and 15. That was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, this is Pilate, behold your king. They cried away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? Now notice the response. Verse 15 of John 19. The chief priest, the people that were supposed to be at the front of the procession, be the, the people that are saying, this is the Messiah because he fits all of the characteristics of them. These are the guys supposed to lead the people of Israel into recognizing who Christ is. They don't honestly not only recognize, recognize him, the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. The force of that statement is a betrayal that is unable to be measured by any mechanism that we have that has ever been created. You cannot measure the level of betrayal that is. Caesar is to the Romans the God-man, the Caesar August. He's the God-man. And they have Jesus, the Son of God, before them. And they say, we don't want him. We have no king but Caesar's. We are in line with the pagan rulers who worship all these other gods. 
Our fealty, our loyalty, our allegiance is aligned with Caesar. That's how far people go who don't like Jesus. They have no time for Jesus. It's not that they simply want Jesus to exist. They can't stand for Jesus to exist because of what he represents. And if you take a stand for who Jesus Christ is, people will oppose you. People will not stand you, not so much because of you, but because you represent Christ. The people that should have seen Christ for who he is, they didn't. Then see what they did. And what they did is based on who they are. They're lost. What do you see this morning as we think about this triumphal entry? Do you see Jesus like the disciples? Are you ready, willing to follow him? All confused at times, challenged at times as we see the disciples were through this week. Are you like the crowds? Are you like the money changers? Are you like the, the blind and the lame, needy? Are you like the religious leaders, power, prestige, and seeing that um, you don't want Jesus to crowd in on you? Now, you're here this morning, I would say, you don't likely fit into category like that, but there are people around you who do. We're called to give those people the gospel, to extend people hope. You have an opportunity this week, as the band is coming up, you have an opportunity this week to be able to share with people who Jesus Christ is. Our society is charged with the concept of Easter. Now you have the opportunity to share with them, to help them see what you see, to engage with them in a conversation, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family. Just a simple question. Who do you think Jesus Christ is? Just ask the question. Enter into it. Enter into a dialogue. It's your joy. It's your privilege. It's your hope to be the tip of the spear to extend to people that they should see Christ this way. And if they see Christ this way, that affects what they, how they live, what they do, how they honor Christ. And that determines who they are. They're a follower of Christ. If they see Christ poorly, that's your opportunity. Always remember that Jesus wants us to live in freedom, the freedom that he defines of following after him. Your sins have been forgiven. No one can hold that against you anymore. What can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ? Take that as your banner and move forward this week. And remember, follow Jesus Christ, not as how you might want him to be. Well, he knows that I'm... I'm quiet. He knows that I can't really talk. He knows all that, but talk anyway. He knows that you are bashful around people. He knows you don't know a whole lot. Tell people what you do know. And as you enter into that, he will take you and mold you and make you, and you'll find joy. Don't leave joy on the table. Your joy is to represent Christ in this world. You want to help people see Christ clearly. And as we saw these five groups... We want to make sure that we are in the tip of the spear because what people see determines what they do and what they do determines who they are. We want to be the people that were like the blind and lame because that's how we were and are if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit and his Bible. Holy Spirit and his word, and now we worship. Take that worship to people who desperately need it. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, as we enter the front end of this holy week, Would you mold us? Would you make us? Would you cut away the stale parts of our life? Convict us of the things we watch. 
the things that we laugh at, the conversations we have. Help us to not see you as keeping us from life, but help us see those things as quenching your spirit in our life. Help us to open our mouth to our neighbor, our coworkers, and our friends and our families, especially this week, just to simply ask them what people think of you. What do they think of Easter? And then give us the words to say, the truth to represent, that we might extend who you are, and you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're the Savior of the world, and there's only one Savior. To draw people through our witness and help us to stand in a way that honors you, because this is the hope of the nation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.